If you knew me, you would know that I am a martial arts master. Hi, I'm Leah Parker Belfer, a T22, and you're listening to If You Knew Me, a grassroots podcast dedicated to celebrating diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. Hi, today I'm here with Eric McConnell, T22. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, uh, martial arts master in any particular um, practice? Yeah, so I think when people say that they do martial arts, it's yeah. either one of two things. It's traditional martial arts that generally come from like Eastern cultures or Asian cultures. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Wing Chun. Shaolin animal style kung fu, all the different forms of karate, taekwondo. I think in this instance, it's more directed at combat sports. So mm. martial arts that compete and are meant to fight and compete. So mm. I spent most of my, although I did take traditional martial arts, I spent nine years competing in mixed martial arts, Muay Thai, boxing, judo, Brazilian jiu jitsu. And probably other things that I'm forgetting, like wrestling. And then I also um, then transitioned to refereeing. And I've refereed over 100 Muay Thai fights. And then I was also a coach of three amateur fighters. That's awesome. And so how did you get into this? Yeah, so I'd like to blame three things for getting me into martial arts. First, I grew up watching kung fu movies nonstop. Mm -hmm. And I clearly remember, I think it was Miramax brought over a lot of Jackie Chan's movies from the 90s to American cinema. Mm-hmm. And so Drunken Master 2, which in America I think was just released as Drunken Master, I remember seeing that in theaters and just being like my mind was blown. Like how epic. How epic and everything. Um, so that's one. Number two, I would blame Shonen anime. So Dragon Ball Z is easily oh, yeah. to blame because everyone watches like these heroes and they solve all their problems by training and then fighting the bad guy and I think it imprints something on like yeah especially young men where we're like oh yeah if I train and fight I can solve all my problems too and three it's a little darker but I would say 95% of people who find themselves fighting other people in cages or rings Mm. were bullied as a kid and so a lot of times you go to it seeking some kind of power or control control, or like you have this fantasy that uh someone's gonna mess with me and then i'm gonna knock them out and yeah and and then in reality ironically and everyone says this once generally once you know how to fight and you actually compete and fight you have no desire to ever fight outside so i've never been in a fight since like middle school and right. I had no desire to ever if someone at the bar tried to start a fight I would just walk away because it's like it's kind of like the irony of martial arts in general is once you get the confidence and once you know you can fight you don't really ever want to fight because why why would yeah. you want to fight yeah that makes sense um and so where did you you said you listed so many where did you start in your journey yeah so originally I took uh, because of my love for Kung Fu, I took five animal styles, Southern, I think it's Southern Shaolin Kung Fu. And okay. I did that for two or three years in high school. And then when I got to undergraduate, um, obviously there's people from all over the world and they showed me highlight reels from K1 and K1 Max, which at the time were the, is this worldwide, uh, kickboxing organization. Okay. And it was in Japan and it was probably the 
one of the biggest combat sports in the world. And they showed me um, two highlight reels. Bulkab Propromuk, he was a K1 Max champ, so that's 155. And then Mirko Krokop, who was a K1 fighter that then transitioned to MMA, um, and he was a heavyweight. And I remember just my mind being blown because it was mm. like watching, you know, s- to some degree, a Jet Li Fist of Legends fight, but in real life. And it was like two martial arts masters squaring yeah. off. And it like blew my mind that in America we have boxing, right? And then I guess right. there's like professional wrestling. Um, right. But it blew my mind that in like Japan, they're having like all these crazy martial arts versus martial arts fight. And this is uh, also before, really before mixed martial arts became one congelled training style. So even when you branched out of kickboxing into Pride or K1 Heroes, it was still in UFC back in the day too. It was still that era of mm. we're going to take a Taekwondo master and put him in you know, the ring against a wrestler or a a sumo wrestler versus this or that and we're gonna take a kickboxer and so it was like watching these movies where i get excited when like two heroes fight but now they're like doing it for real and i get to watch it and so that was a big moment for me where i was like oh my gosh this does exist and i can do it and so even more ironically and i went to an undergrad deep in the appalachian mountains and when Mm. i say deep i mean (laughs) There's a city called Asheville, North Carolina, that's in the mountains. And if you go 45 minutes past Asheville to where there's only pretty much like a Walmart and a handful of restaurants, that's where I went to undergrad. Mm. Like, And ironically, our stats professor and some of the locals were all different martial arts. Who would have thought? People. And they opened yeah. the MMA gym and they all fought amateur MMA. And then even more ironically... There was a legendary catch wrestling coach, which is like wrestling with submissions, in Asheville who trained professional fighters, and they would go there to learn ground game, and then they all had boxing and other types of like Mm. uh, Shotokan karate training. And like they had an MMA gym in this podunk random mountain town, and this is circa 2005, so well before the UFC was accepted and well Mm. before... You know, you could back in the day, you could turn on Spike TV and watch like fights. So this is like back when everything's underground. And so it was just ironic that all the pieces aligned at once that I found all these sports. And then I found a gym that actually had training for all this. Yeah. I mean, one one of the thoughts I had was one, I didn't realize the ecosystem truly, like how how vast and also nuanced. And then. Um, I was going to ask, how hard was it to find, you know, training facilities, teachers, and really what does it mean to become a master? And um, I could see some people using the term liberally. So yeah. what do you think about it? Yeah, so I'm using it extremely liberally. Oh, okay. I, don't, I don't think <laughs> there's no way I'm a martial arts master. I'd say compared to like everyone else at off the street. Sure. Yes, right. Okay. You've trained in it is what I've competed yeah. like for in all these sports. Um I'll say I'll let's let's start like that first gym I trained at was a abandoned warehouse mm-hmm. and they put up drywall and this is deep in the mountains. So in the winter it would be like thirty degrees in there and we'd have like a few space heaters and we'd have to train in sweats and then in the summer it would be ninety degrees. And <laughs> that was that gym. 
as I moved around, so I moved to LA at some point, I moved to San Francisco, I've trained at different levels of facilities, Mm -hmm. and I've trained with famous, well-known fighters. So probably the most famous gym I trained at was, um, oh crap, I can't even, oh, El Nino, that was the name. Can you train at any, like, do you have to be invited or fill out an application? Yeah, so most gyms, are money losses for the most part. Like the sports business is terrible. There's a not great show called Kingdom on Netflix and they go into it a lot. Like running a MMA gym is a money loss. So you actually generally you'll find a lot of the gyms that even the top fighters train at will teach anyone who wants to pay to be taught. They'll have tons of beginners classes mm. and they'll even teach things like Pilates and whatever else could bring money yeah, into stretching. the door. Yeah. yeah. So I trained That's at funny. El Nino and Two of the UFC's top fighters were there, along with a few others, so Gilbert Melendez and Jake Shields. And then we even had coaches who were two-time Lupini champions, so Johnson and Fairtex. Um, and this will take a second. So in Thailand, in Muay Thai, the national sport, each stadium has champions at different weight classes, and the number one stadium is Lupini. And this guy was a two-time Lupini champ, so it's like a very big deal. And he's teaching... Most of his teaching is teaching beginner classes because that's what keeps the lights open. So even these UFC fighters who are wow. getting, when they both of them had title fights while I was there, um, maybe made five hundred thousand to show up, and then probably made like a few, over a million with pay per view buys and everything else. They still mostly ran the business off beginner classes because mm. the money, the insurance. Think about insurance for these gyms is like. I, I imagine you sign a huge waiver. Huge waiver that's like <laughs> you will be murdered and we will not pay you any money. Like yeah. they, I think it, that's the waiver. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so that's like the gym life. And then martial arts master. Again, I, I just say it lightly, in the sense that compared to everyone else, my knowledge like. I feel like I could train anyone, especially in stand-up fighting. So like Muay Thai, kickboxing, stand-up for MMA. Um, I feel like I have such a rich knowledge. Now, it's probably, so I'm I'm about to turn 34, and the last time I competed was when I was 27, and the last time I seriously trained was 29. So whether like someone could try to assault me Oh, and gosh. how that would go. Eric. I don't know. It's been a while. I'm probably really rusty. But uh, yeah. I, I do say, like, I spent nine years where I would go to work, you know, making video games during the day. And then I would go straight Train. to the gym for mm-hmm. two to three hours. And then when I had fights, I would actually get up super early and, like, run three to five miles and do calisthenics and plyometrics, go to work, and then go train again for like two to three hours and so this was my life for a long time wait your competitions later at night no 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 generally uh oh i see yeah yeah this was the building up yes so i would say my build-ups were normally like five to six weeks of like fight camp so you're training constantly and then when you're in fight camp you ramp it up right right, right, and then you teeter it off the week of the fight and then you mostly have to worry about weight cuts so I would generally fight at anywhere from 155 to 170, mm-hmm. generally 160 for Muay Thai. And I would walk around at like 177. So the week of the fight, I would have to cut 
17 pounds. Is this weight. like water? Yeah. Lack, oh, yeah. lack of water? It's okay. all water. <laughs> you just, you basically stop eating for two days and you just figure out oh these my. horrible ways to suck water out of your body. That does not sound it's, healthy. It's not fun or healthy, but neither is getting punched in the face. Um, I actually like, I have so many injuries over the years too. Yeah. Um, a I lot of people imagine. don't know this, but these teeth are all fake. Mm. Um, they got kneed out of my mouth. Your front four? Yeah. And then uh, I had to get, like, multiple bone grafts and then eventually implants. I've, like, this – I mean, the viewers can't see, but, like, this yeah. wrist has, like, surgery. This wrist has surgeries. My, you wouldn't be able to tell, actually. They did a good job. It's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, these are all, like, 10 years ago. Okay, so okay. So they've healed up. But, yeah, like, man, the injuries. And it seems like it always felt worth it to you. At the time, it did. Now that I'm older and I look back, it's I guess it's like like people who played football and like football players just like ram each other with their heads all and day. And you think you're invincible, and then later on, you're like, oh, I've caused lasting damage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I keep telling myself, I'm like, this. My 60s are probably not going to be amazing for Your me. Your joints are probably going to be <laughs> talking to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. It's one of those things where at the time, yeah. it's it. In a weird way, it helped me out. Mm, um, mm-hmm. It gave me direction. It definitely taught me all about nutrition yeah. and exercise. And like discipline and discipline. some of the, yeah. All of that stuff, yeah. And self-confidence and, you know, not kind of like how to control fear mm. and anxiety. Because another thing a lot of people don't know is, and I think if you read, there's a former UFC welterweight champ. Uh, named George St. Pierre, and he goes into detail about this, but Mm. every fighter leading up to the fight, I don't care how seasoned they are, I would say 90% of them are scared out of their mind because what it is is you show up to these shows, you've been training six weeks to knock someone out or do whatever you're doing. Oh, gosh, yeah. That person has also been training six weeks to knock you out. Yeah. Your friends and family are in the audience. Their friends and family are in the audience. And, like, it, and then you show up, like, at 10 a.m., you're probably not fighting until 5 p.m. Because you're watching other other folks go? Because there's, like, yeah. Yeah. Some of these, like, lower-level cards, there might be, like, 30 fights. And so you're just sitting there in the back hearing people get knocked out and really injured. So you see people in your waiting room. They're warming up. They're getting ready. You're like, good luck, bro. Good luck. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, gosh. They walk out there. They come back 15 minutes later. And one of them might be like their nose might be flat. And like they can't even open their eye. And there's blood everywhere. And you're just like, oh, I'm next. (laughs) And so you're doing that for like hours trying to like keep your heart rate down. And so everyone to some degree, whether they want to admit it or not, is scared out of their mind right, right before you go out there. And Oh, I'd, I'd actually recommend everyone watch Mike Tyson's one-man show. And I think they did a documentary of it for uh, HBO or Showtime. And he goes through this whole thing where he goes through his mindset in the back. And like it starts off with something like, I'm scared to death. I don't know. Uh, can I do this? And it's, it's some kind of like thing where he's like scared. He doesn't know what he's going to do. What right. is he doing here? And then it builds up and he's like, as he's walk, he goes through his mindset as he's walking out and he's like, and he's like, he's like, I'm the best. I'm the strongest. And by the time he gets in the ring and looks at his opponent across, he's like, I'm Mike Tyson. I'm invincible. I'm wow. the greatest fighter. And that's honestly a honest description of it. Where like in the back, you are literally mentally breaking down you're like i'm about to go 
Is it dead quiet in there? Like People are hitting pads, but not many people are talking. I try to tell jokes. That doesn't really go over well. (laughs) I can imagine some people are probably like, shut up. Yeah, people, other, because you're in there with other fighters. So generally they, there's like a red and blue corner. And at some of these events, there might be multiple dressing rooms, but at some there's just everyone in their blue corner goes here and everyone. So it's you and like 30 other people, they're coaches. So you have like three coaches per fighter. And you're all just sitting around. And then maybe people are warming up and, like, hitting pads to stay sure. warm. But, uh, yeah, it's beyond, I like, think the mental piece is, yeah. like, a whole other podcast episode. It's crazy, probably. yeah. And then your body takes over by the time you get into the ring. Yeah. And you're just a full-on adrenaline. And so, you know, it sounds like you're no longer actively training yeah. or practicing. I mean, would is it is it kind of like once you hit a certain point in your life you're done kind of or would you go back or I, there's definitely people who never quit okay. and you see this with older fighters who constantly should should have quit um, and then they get really injured for me it definitely I hit a point where whatever was driving me to this went away and I remember clearly this goes back to like the fear and everything yeah. my last time I competed was this like amateur Muay Thai smoker. I was, com- I was pretty, I was very experienced at this point. And the guy I was competing with was also pretty experienced. Um, and I remember getting into going to fight and like looking at him across and generally like you're, you're tunnel visioned, you're yeah. like set. By the time like the rest, like, are you ready? Are you ready? Or they come up and explain the rules. Um, you're just like, yeah, let's go. You're, you're a predator. You see the prey. They see you. You're like. You're not even thinking. Like, instincts have completely taken over. I remember standing there and going, like, his shorts look dumb. <laughs> and I remember and I remember going, oh, crap. I'm not ready. I was like, I don't have the adrenaline, and I don't have anything. Like, my mind isn't sharp, and I'm like, I'm about to get the crap kicked out of me. And oh, luckily, no. he did kick the crap out of me, but he got tired kicking the crap out of me, and then I fought back. So, uh it was a draw, but I do remember even in that Wait, fight. Wait, that's really funny, too. Yeah. At, in the fight, at one point in the second round, he's, like, kneeing me in my ribs and just, like, throwing me around. And he knees me and throws me to the ground. And the ref comes over and, like, waves it off. And I went, in my mind, I go, thank God it's over. <laughs> <laughs> and then the ref ca- counted that as a slip, not as a knockdown. And then the round ended, and my corner was like, Eric, come back. And we were on the opposite side of the ring, and I remember being like... Dragging your body? Yeah, I remember looking at them being like, are we not done yet? Are we seriously going to keep doing this? Don't make me get up. Don't make me get up. And I remember, yeah, I got up, and I, like, summoned whatever strength I had left. But after that fight, I looked at everyone, and I was like, okay, I think that was my last fight ever. Were they like, yeah, we saw that in you? (laughs) They, I don't know, they were like... I think the coaches get amped up too. Yeah, and so I'm sure. They're like, yeah, you're just saying that, but you'll be back. You're like, no, I know myself. Yeah. I was looking at his shorts. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, those shorts look dumb. I was like, mm, his muscles look good, but like, I don't know if he's going to be strong. Yeah, he could just be dehydrated. Yeah. I'm dehydrated. Yeah. yeah, I could see the narrative going. Yeah, yeah. And then that's when you know, like, oh yeah. man, something's wrong. Oh gosh. Well, so is there. Um, is there anything else about, you know, your experience or um, kind of any words you want to share with the audience about martial arts? Yeah, I would say um, to everyone, I would really encourage everyone to watch martial arts and really mm. try to, like, understand that combat sports and martial arts are 
to me, I've played every sport under the sun, and there's nothing like it. It it, it really is playing the most complex mind game mm. of feints, psychology, everything, because especially a sport like MMA, the rules are so open that it supports all body shapes and sizes. Mm. And it's up to you to then like mold your body to your own game plan style and the other person to do that. And mm. you come together and you play this like, like I know Joe Rogan says it's like playing a high level game of chess with dire physical consequences. <laughs> I would actually describe it more as it's like playing chess, but everyone, there's no turns and we can move pieces however we want, whenever we want dangerous game (laughs) yeah and so you're just like sitting there trying to see if are they going to start moving their pieces should i start moving mine and Mm. then that's that's how i would describe fighting because it's just so open and free that should i go for should i try to set up habits should i try to like set him up for a big punch should i counter should i like for him to attack should i try to intimidate him like tire them out yeah there's so many strategy and so Mm. many mind games and it's just you and this other person alone in a ring or cage that it truly is like the most complex, beautiful sport. Mm. Once you get past the brutality and the fact that people are trying to hurt each other, um, I'd say everyone should give it a chance because to me, it it really is the most purest mm. reflection of sport. Because I feel like a lot of sports are kind of like abstractions of war, like soccer, football. It's like mm. two warring armies trying to like go to war but fighting is war you know and so i'd highly recommend people i know there are people in the dorms that watch it um so next time there's a big fight maybe everyone at tuck should get together and watch it yeah raither like and we can like maybe buy buy food or something yes yes that'd be awesome yeah um well so to end with a fun fact you mentioned you were in the video game industry um do you have a favorite video game oh interesting okay um, I would say people of my generation generally say one of two games. They either go like Final Fantasy VII or mm. Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. But I would say my favorite game is EverQuest. And for those of you who don't know, EverQuest was released in like 1999. And it was really the first 3D MMORPG. And you could be like elves and dark elves and ogres and trolls. And I remember it just like I lived alone in a kind of like more farmland part of North Carolina outside of Raleigh. And I remember it blew my mind because you log on this server and you see 2,000 other people doing adventures with you. And it was it was like one of the first times where I realized the power of the internet and mm. that like in the future, it's like almost not going to matter where you are. You can connect with anyone because here I was like going on quests and adventures with people from like brazil and germany all at the same time all in this world and so yeah to me that's probably the greatest game of all time it was such a big game changer and i feel like people don't talk about it as much does that mean people have stopped playing it as much or i think it's because world of warcraft came out like many years later and uh kind of the mmorpg genre uh isn't as probably strong as it used to be people now play like Fortnite or play mobile games but it was really like those old mmorpgs were the first foray into so many technologies and so many like game design paradigms that didn't really exist before and it Mm -hmm. was like translating really like dungeons and dragons adventures to be online but with thousands of people all happening at the same time Mm -hmm. which was very special 
Well, Eric, thank you so much for being here. It was so fun talking. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of If You Knew Me. I founded the If You Knew Me podcast back in the fall of 2020 to help deepen student connections and foster a culture of belonging here at Tuck. Please check out our other episodes to support and learn more about other Tuckies. Special thanks to my partner, Alex Mitko, for helping with sound production. If you have any questions or feedback on the podcast, or if you want to be featured in a future episode, please contact us at the email address listed in the description. 